Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes old and new on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. Oh, nothing makes me happier than to know that another show will be opening soon that has our guest attached to it. He is one of the most brilliant individuals working in theater. And if you don't believe me, head up to the Agonquit Playhouse in Maine, July 1st, August through August 6th and see the show he worked on with the late, great Marvin Hamlish and Jerry Lewis. It's a musical version of The Nutty Professor. And I've heard the score, friends. This show is not to be missed. Indeed. Uh, Our guest has crafted some of the greatest evenings in our theater-going lives with such shows as The Mystery of Edwin Drood, for which he won the Tony for Best Book and Best Score, Accomplice, Say Goodnight Gracie, Curtains, A Time to Kill, Marty, Robin and the Seven Hoods, The First Wives Club, Secondhand Lions, not to mention the iconic AMC series Remember When, and a little thing called Escape the Pina Colada Song. (laughs) To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as John Cantor, Joe Papp, Jason Alexander, Marvin Hamlish, Frank Gorshin, Cleo Lane, and so many others, here is the star of the iconic Mystery of Edwin Drood music video, Mr. Rupert Holmes. Rupert, how are you today? Yes, that was that was my greatest role starring in that music video. That, was, <laughs> that 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 bought me some time on air with Rita Coolidge, and we had get a lot of fun. That was very nice. But um, yeah, do you have that video? Do you, do it you, is okay. So it is on YouTube, and us and our listeners are fascinated by it because it doesn't tell us who ended up being the murderer. All the YouTube video shows us is is the video, which is hysterical. Do you remember who the murderer was? Oh, there's listeners? a clue. You have oh. to look at the video very carefully. You can oh. solve that video yourself if you wish to. Oh. Now, let me see. Um, uh, it, it, it involves watching uh, the, a close-up of someone's hand. Okay. And, and we made the murderer someone who was most rarely voted the murderer on Broadway. We decided that the, this person, I'm trying to remain gender free as thank you. you. So he or she did not get to um, be the murderer very often, although they campaigned for it a lot. So we decided (laughs) that that would be the person who would be the murderer in this, in this video, but you have to look at it and watch your close-ups and, uh, and keep your hand in until you, uh, until you've solved it and and you'll figure it out. Okay. So listeners, if you click in our show description below, you can click on the link to the music video. See if you can figure this out. Maybe Rupert will be kind enough to to tell us if we can, if we, Kevin, you and I, this is going to be our weekend activity. I think so. We are going to solve this mystery. I'm, I can't wait. This is going to be the saddest Agatha Christie novel ever written, (laughs) (laughs) but we'll do it now. Okay. So Rupert, let's talk a little bit about the nutty professor first, um, which is, first of all, the score is wonderful. How did you get involved with the musicalization of this piece? It started with Marvin, uh, Jerry Lewis, who, 
created the original movie, 1960 motion picture, starred in it, um, rated one of the 100 best comedies of all time, film comedies of all time by the uh, AFI. He and uh, some other people, including a producer, decided it was time that perhaps this could be on a, a stage. And he opted for Marvin Hamlish. And Marvin and I had had uh, parallel careers. Marvin um, wrote a Tony Award-winning Broadway show, and, and I wrote a Tony Award-winning Broadway show. Marvin um, wrote songs for Barbara Streisand that he also arranged and conducted. I did an album with Barbara Streisand that I also arranged and conducted called Lazy Afternoon. Marvin uh, wrote uh, some magnificent film scores for motion pictures, and I owned DVDs of all of those films. <laughs> so it's almost, almost taught, you know, so inseparable. Plus, the funniest thing is that we used to end up in the that golden era of American history known as the Pina Colada age, mm-hmm. when, when I had the number one record in the United States for my 15 months of fame. Um, Marvin and I got booked on a lot of shows together, which was maybe the stupidest stupidest booking. I mean, you've got two people sitting at a piano with glasses who were kind of had were nerdy, no no doubt about that. And why not have them both on the same show? So when I did the Carson show for the first time, Marvin was sitting at my right hand. And Hmm. um, and so we we had always known each other a little. We would meet in green rooms and talk, or, or he'd come to an opening night of mine, I of his, and he called me, and he said, are you interested in, in doing this, this music, a musical? I said, who, who for? He said, well, it would be really, we'd, we'd be writing it for Jerry Lewis. And I, now, okay, step back a second. Jerry Lewis, my absolute boyhood idol, when I was a boy, this is pre-Beatles, the two coolest people on earth mm-hmm. were Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis. That was They were the coolest people. They wore tuxedos when they performed, but they clowned it up. They were buddies. It was the original buddy team. They were Hope and Crosby, but but more hip. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would The TV series that they did, they, they, they call, a Colgate Comedy Hour, sometimes they would come in like eight minutes too short on live TV. Eight minutes out of an hour, and they had to fill eight minutes ad libbing on live TV, network TV, and they would do it, and he would be, un- it would be the best part of the show. Mm-hmm. And then you'd go to the movies, and it would be, there was beautiful Technicolor and Hal Wallace production and the Paramount picture, and it was, and they were buddies, and then they broke up, and it was devastating to a generation. But so Marvin said it would be for Jerry, and we both, of course, thought, well, this is Jerry Lewis, this is a comedy god, mm-hmm. we have to do this. And, the, and so we, we agreed, the deal was initially that we would write um, two songs um, to show him what this character that he created of both Julius Kelp, the nutty professor, and later the character of Buddy Love, the ultimate and obnoxious swinger, what he would sound like if he sang. Mm-hmm. And then we were flown to San Diego, where he had a, lived on a houseboat, and we <clears throat> went to a hotel, and uh, we were about to play him these two tunes we had written. It was essentially an audition. If he liked them, we were in, and that was it. Um, the first thing that happened is I'm standing there, and Marvin starts an intro. And for the first time, I think, you know, when you have Marvin Hamlish as your piano player, you have one hell of an accompanist. He was, so I said, I'd never had an accompanist who ever played the stuff he's playing. It was just yeah. a cop. So that was one a wonderful thing. Then I realized something quite frightening, which is I am about four feet from Jerry Lewis, and I realize I have to do Jerry Lewis for Jerry Lewis. <laughs> oh my gosh. I thought, what if, what corner have I painted myself into? <laughs> and this is a character he created. It's not just that, oh, I directed the movie, and that's not how yeah, I see it. This right. was Jerry. And I suddenly had to stand there and go, Ah, uh, Miss Purdy, I believe you'll find that if you look at the uh, formula, you'll find... And I'm... and. When I was all over singing the song, which I have sung at 54 Below, I'm very proud to have done that, he turned to me and said, Holmes, you're a real ham. And I thought, Jerry Lewis is calling me? Uh-huh. <laughs> anyway, we, he was delighted with what we had written, and then we went on to write this musical that is probably the, as, as good a set of lyrics as I, I've written. Wow. And... Uh, and Marvin was at the height of his 
powers. And it's a beautiful Marvin Hamlish score with a couple of songs that are really endearing and touching and a couple of songs that are life affirming. Mm -hmm. We did the show. And while we were in our initial run out of town at the huge uh, Tennessee Performing Arts Center, which is like a 2,500-seat theater, oh, wow. um, doing this first tryout of this musical, uh, Marvin died unexpectedly. And immediately, if you've ever been through contesting a will or anything like that, so many legal ramifications started kicking in. Not people being adversarial. And then Jerry died shortly mm -hmm. after that. And now we had so much legal red tape that it has taken us 10 years. Marvin died 10 years ago next month. Wow. Uh, it's taken us this long to be able to clear the underlying rights, get that going, clear the publishing, clear the music. So this is the first chance we've had to raise this musical in 10 years. And that's why if, if, if people wonder why they, why there's this Marvin Hamlish musical that they, they've never heard of, it's because it had this one outing uh, during which Marvin passed away. Mm. So this is a very meaningful show, obviously, for any reason, but particularly because it is, one, the last Marvin Hamlish musical. Two, it is as um, lovely and touching a musical from his, I can speak about his end of it because I, I can't speak for myself. But in terms of just the kind of, as we work on these melodies, we look at each other every now and then and say, boy, Marvin really knew what he was doing. And he is, he liked to think of himself as a people's composer. And you should never be confused by how accessible his music is. Mm -hmm. He made it accessible. He worked artfully and, and, and caringly to make sure that, um, not to be showy with it, but to make sure it all made sense and that a person without a musical education could come there and experience the songs um, every bit as much as someone who was more astute about such things. And, and as, as we work on this score, um, I sit there and I just marvel how right up until his last days, he was writing supple, robust melodies mm -hmm. and just the most endearing ballads, um, just beautiful work. So it means a lot to be doing this. And, and and what a beautiful gift for you to give both of them, because it, I'm assuming you could have easily walked away from all of this after they had passed and put this show behind you. But you want to get their work out there and have them be remembered. I think that's so lovely. I, 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 I want people to hear this score. Mm. I really do. Um, because it shows that he hadn't lost a thing. Tell us a little bit. Have you been in rehearsals? Yes, indeed. And how's it how's it going up there? Um, they decided to abandon the script and the score on the first right. day, and they're just improvising now. That's wonderful. <laughs> they said, you know, we've read Pirandello, and yeah. <laughs> and uh, we think we think that w what we should do is just think about the script, and then say what we're feeling, kind of like the way they make movies. It's you a know, great idea. They, well, wouldn't my character say this, and then they let the person say this? Yeah, no, it's going fantastically. <laughs> um, Mark Bruni, who directed uh, Beautiful, is an incredibly sensitive and inventive director, and uh, we are we alter things truly three, four times a day. Um, I don't mean, you know, just say what would happen if that happened. Yeah. Where mm -hmm. And what if he doesn't know that yet? Oh, and I'd say, oh, that plays out kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely, which is the thing I love about theater, always malleable and always capable of being re envisioned. It's going really, really well. Cannot wait to see it. Yeah. We are so excited. And like I said, I had heard the score a few years ago and it's just marvelous. It is just marvelous. And you've got an incredible cast up in Maine. Can you tell us about some of the people that are going to be embodying these great roles? My pleasure. For the lead, for the title role, it's about as much as an actor could ever ask for, which is that of the three leads of a musical, you're two of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anyone who you know, right? Um, and uh, he, because uh, it's it's Max Crum, mm -hmm. who uh, is uh, I remember seeing because Kathleen Marshall, my friend, uh, was part of choosing him to be the lead in her revival of Greece. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, uh, and and watching him rise to stardom that way was was quite amazing. It's quite something because he he has to be two completely different characters. 
and yet we have to always sort of see the the kind character through the brash character. And I challenged him even further in that, I don't want to give away too much of the plot, but at one point, he is forced to be the kind character pretending to be the brash character Mm. while seeming appearing to be the brash character, but we can tell that he's impersonating the person he usually transforms into. So that's as many layers. It's tricky, yeah. You know, really, seriously. Uh, You know, Eliza, you'll be not only the Cockney flower girl, but we want you to be the professor of elocution as well. (laughs) If you can just, you know, cover, you know, alternate, it's just (laughs) balance, you know. So so Max is doing a, a spectacular job with that. And then uh, we have uh, Eleanor Ricardo, who is bringing so much to a completely re-envisioned version of the role. Mm. Um, and we have had to do some rewriting since 10 years ago, because I don't know if any of you have noticed, but the world has changed. Yes. Oh. And when Nutty Professor was originally filmed in 1960, it was about a professor who falls madly in love with his young student. Well, that takes us. That means that show closes around uh, page two. Yep. <laughs> in this day and age, you know, everyone gets canceled and yeah. we move on. Yeah, well, it's about a teacher, you know, it's a teacher student romance. It's fun. <laughs> yeah, fun. Uh, so I had to kind of re envision the role, and we did a, a new version of the, the, not only the, the musical, but particularly of her character, the character of Stella, uh, in 2019 at a reading for Ogunkwood. And we were gung ho, and we were going to move right forward, and then COVID. Strong, mm-hmm. and we would have been open two summers ago otherwise. Wow! So not only is this show ten years since we last did it, but two years since we were supposed to do it right. because of COVID. So I have reinvented the role pretty much from the ground up. The songs that were written happened to work for her because we were writing a song about a a very a, a different kind of a woman. In even though it was the setting is still 1960. We were writing about someone who was ahead of the curve mm-hmm. in 1960. So now as we get to 2022, um, the lyrics do not seem very far afield from what we were doing. Mm. But um, the scripting and how she reacts to things and what she wants out of life, I've had to reevaluate that um, a lot. But she is, she is that kind of a performer. She's, um, she has a real core to her, a voice out of control when she sings While I Still Have the Time, which is the anthemic ballad uh, I defy any goosebump to remain uh, hidden on your on your arms and so she's spectacular well we cannot wait to see it and folks once again if you look into our info description there's a link get yourself up to Maine uh, it is a marvelous show fingers crossed if you miss it in Maine maybe you'll get to see it in New York at some point that would be very nice now Rupert we're going to jump all the way back to your beginnings um, I understand that uh, you uh, grew up in a Gilbert and Sullivan home. Is that correct? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. My father was um, a fascinating blend of different musical influences on me and on the family. Uh, my father was a um, Juilliard graduate Ooh. who um, was also the youngest musician to tour in the big band era. When he was 19, he was playing lead alto with a band called Red Norvo, who was one of the great vibraphone players of all time, uh, and touring the country. So he was both a jazz musician and a classical clarinetist. And after the war, he conducted Tuscanini's Orchestra on NBC Radio. Uh, He had his own show called Serenade for Strings. And by the time I was growing up, I did get to see him conduct the NBC Symphony Orchestra once. But he became a, um, a school teacher. So he had a family to raise, and he needed right. something consistent. One sure. place in our household where we all could agree was Gilbert and Sullivan, mm. because my father loved the classical music. My mother, who was British and taught me, which sat me down and, and educated me on the lyrics of Lawrence Hart mm. and Bill Coward and said, this is what writing is. So she loved their lyrics, Gilbert and Sullivan's lyrics. My brother liked it because it was almost opera, and I liked it because it was almost musical theater. Mm-hmm. It was almost musical comedy at times. Yeah. So we all could agree on it. And we grew up in a household where that was the one music that anyone could play in the house as loud as they wanted any time of the day. So, yeah, that is. And my first musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood, set in 1895, the same time that Gilbert and Sullivan were writing things through the Savoy Opera, uh, Opera yeah. House in London, certainly was influenced heavily 
by all the Gilbert and Sullivan I had heard growing up. And the, the mm. joke was that when the West End production of The Mystery of Edmund Drood opened in London, it was at the Savoy Opera House, where, where Gilbert and Sullivan debuted almost all their operettas. Yeah. So that just felt like, oh, I'm home. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What are some of the things that you've absorbed from Gilbert and Sullivan that you still take with you today when you start to write a project? They were great at songs that introduce, where characters introduce themselves. They were great at writing a song where you come out onto the stage and a character comes on the stage and the first thing they decide to do is to tell you their life story. Right. And, and you can't, <laughs> and right. you know how often that happens. Hey, how are you? What's your name? Joe Smith. I was born in 1947. I was, <laughs> <laughs> doesn't happen that often in life, but, but there are ways that you can do that. And in, in, uh, in nutty professor, uh, for example, when Stella arrives uh, on the scene, when Julius first meets her, she has a song that, in a camouflaged way, basically lets you tell her everything she went through to get to the moment she's at right now. Mm. And, and it helps. It gives you, you, by the time the song is over, you know who this person is and you kind right. of, you know. So that's one of the things. Let me ask you, because I think a lot of younger people that are now in like these BFA. Other than me. No, 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 no. <laughs> no, please, no. A lot of like people that are in BFA musical theater programs because they okay. listen because they listen to the show. Well, musical theater began with Les Mis. Yes, there was no absolutely. Musical theater before Les Mis. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. So we don't have to bother with anything that happened before that, right? No, absolutely Interrupted not. Your question, Robert. I'm sorry. Go no, ahead. I. <laughs> for but for a good joke, so I'll let it go. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's imagine someone has never seen Gilbert and Sullivan before. What operetta would you hand to them and say, listen to this, because this is probably the best representation of their work. It doesn't have to be their most popular. It doesn't even have to be their most accessible. But one that you think is, yes, that to me is the definitive GNS. That, that, that's tricky because yes. you want to write something that will be the easiest to like on a first listening and I have to admit, and I wrote a chapter with my brother about this in a wonderful book <laughs> called um, 50 Key... E-Stage Musicals. Thank you for the plug, Rupert. Yeah, Thank nice you. job. Nice job. Edited <laughs> by the brilliant uh, and professorial Robert Schneider. <laughs> That's right. um, but I, I would say probably HMS Pinafore is, is mm. if you're going to... Only because it makes silly sense. Almost every song is likable. It's full of what I just described, it, it, songs where people come out and tell you who they are. Mm -hmm. And it's got a plot that is kind of funny, but pretty easy to follow. So when did you first realize that being, did you want to be a songwriter when you were growing up? Did you want to be an author? Did you just want to do all of it? How did you fall into actually creating pieces? To bring it down to a very short story, if I can, I knew by the middle of high school, that I wanted to tell stories, but that I also wanted to write music. Mm. I loved music, and that should have been enough. I was a good musician. I entered the, I went to the Manhattan School of Music as a clarinet major, immediately dropped clarinet because I hated clarinet, but it got me into school, immediately switched to um, theory and composition. And by the way, kind of childish joy, uh, last year got an honorary doctorate yes. from the school I yes. dropped out of. Yeah, Doctor Holmes. Incredible. Yes, Doctor Holmes. Yes, I know. There it is. Doctor is in. Uh, so I could have been a musician, and that should have carried me. But I had this compulsion to tell stories, and then I started noticing certain songs where they told stories, and yet they were also wonderful songs. When I was in high school, I heard a a song. To, is uh, I hope you'll know it, Robert uh, or Kevin, uh, and I think it was called "Guess Who I Saw Today, My Love." Guess who I saw? It, and it was from New Faces of 19. Yes, yes. It's, it's yes. a devastating song. And it, it's a devastating song, and it's got a trick ending. It's yep. got a surprise mm -hmm. ending that leaves you in a completely different place than when you began the song. I heard it listening. I was sick and at home in bed from uh, during high school, and I had the radio on, and I was listening to the last remnants of radio. Daytime radio was with Arthur Godfrey, and some woman came on to sing this song, and I thought, what is that? Mm. Yeah. That's a whole movie in itself. Yeah, yeah. And thought, maybe there's a way that if I write songs that tell stories, I can have my cake and eat it too. Which I've always thought, by the way, is a completely reasonable goal if one is involved with cake. You yes. want to eat the cake, 
and you wish to eat it. Right. People, it makes sense. There are people who don't have it and wish to eat it. There are people who have it and don't eat it, and they're missing the mark. It is the having and the eating that is a good thing. <laughs> so, so I started thinking maybe there's a way I can tell stories in song. Basically, what I was doing a lot of the time was writing theater songs or cabaret songs. Right. But I was doing it in the guise of pop or rock at the time. I got into the music business, and I got into the record business when I was like 18. And the advantage that I had was that I could read and write music, and I was also willing to lie and say that I knew how to write for strings, I knew how to write for brass, because I had attended Manhattan School of Music, where I never learned how to write for strings or brass. Um, so, so I got jobs doing things like arranging for the Drifters and Gene Pitney and the Platters, and I'm 18, 19 years old. And finally, an engineer came to me and said, I've got a group, and they have the chance to make one single, and the label doesn't even know they're on the label. What do I do? What, what do I do? How do I get them noticed? They, all they get to make is one 45 record. In those days, a single was a 45 RPM disc. <clears throat> and I, he said, what do I do? I said, well, they should record a song that gets banned. And he said, why would I do that? Wouldn't that be the exact? I said, no, no, no. If it gets banned, there will be controversy. And they'll get noticed, and there will be stories about them. And then you can go to a different label and say, this was that group that would have had a hit, but they got banned. And they'll get a new deal, and they can make an album. He said, will you write me a song that gets banned? I said, sure. Because I said, <laughs> everything. I said, sure to everything. If someone said, can you write the lead sheets for the Five Blind Boys of Alabama? I said, sure. So I wrote this song, and I wrote a song that would get banned. I wrote it about a mining disaster where there's um, where a boy is trapped, and when there's three boys, and when they're pulled free, there's only two of them left, and they don't know what happened to the third boy, but they know they're no longer hungry. <laughs> that was the first song about cannibalism, and it went to 17 on the charts. It was called yes. Timothy by the Boys, and I had written a story song that got up on the charts because of its plot as much as for its tune. And I suddenly thought, maybe there's something to doing this, you know? Mm -hmm. And I wrote a song for the Partridge family called Echo Valley 26809, which had some sound effects in it, which helped tell the story. And finally, I got to make my own album for Epic, and it was called Widescreen, because every song on the album was going to tell a story. Ah. And every song was a different orchestration, mm. different instrumentation. I had 10 actors on the album doing dialogue. The last band on the album was a 10-minute radio show. Wow. Like Singer-songwriter, I've got my first album, and I decide to waste two bands of the album with a 10-minute radio show. And it fell into the hands of Barbara Streisand, who picked up the phone and said, I love what you're doing. I want to record these songs. I see you do your own arrangements, and I want you to fly out here, and I'm going to sing. And she recorded some of the songs from my first album, and I was mm -hmm. standing there in front of a 45-piece orchestra, my arrangements, conducting Barbara Streisand. We did an entire album together. And it sort of made me think that I could be... I had, for example, I had a song on the album that she did called um, Letters Across in the Mail. And it's a fully plotted song. It goes, last month while thinking of love, I wrote her some words and mailed them away. And the next day, I found at my door a letter from Spain she'd sent long before. And the note read, I haven't heard from you in weeks. I must assume that you no longer care. Too bad. That's it. We're through. It's just amazing how loving can fail from letters that cross in the mail. I sat with swords in my heart and pen in my hand. I wrote, I'm glad that we're through. Full of hate, I mailed it. And then in a week, her letter arrived. With love did it speak. And her note read, I loved the tender words you sent. It seems I've wronged you. Please forgive me. I'll return. My ship leaves soon. But God, I know now that she'll never sail. Our letters will cross in the mail. And what it did was it proved to me that there was this genre that I could work in of popular music where there is a narrative involved and where the you're left in a different place when the song is over than when the song began. And if Streisand herself was saying, I fly out here, I want to record this song, surely that must be an indication that this is not like a, a silly theory. Right, right. And I continued to write story songs after that. And eventually, on my fifth album, a song that told a pretty complicated story that people think is about pina coladas, became the number one record in the United States of America. And it's an interesting record in that a lot of people who like it, I don't think have ever listened to the lyric. 
and don't realize there's a story in there with a twist ending. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but those who do uh, sort of rediscover it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, at that point, uh, I was sort of, I had done five albums and I was kind of getting tired of writing stories that took three minutes and had to be told entirely in rhyme. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I thought, I, I, I want to tell a larger story. And from the year 1971 on, I had been haunted by this book called The Mystery of Edwin Drood by Charles Dickens. I'd always meant to read it. And um, I, had, I, had, uh, I happened to have a replica of, uh, this is the copy. We had this on our shelf oh, wow. when I was a boy. Mm-hmm. Everyone had this complete set of Charles Dickens when I was a boy. You were considered a good person if you had it. <laughs> and I love mysteries because in mysteries, the heroes could wear glasses. Yeah. And it's, the only, it's the only stories I knew where the hero could wear glasses. And I was interested in mysteries. I was young. I mean, I was yeah. about 11, 12. Yeah. And yeah. I saw this and said, the mystery of Edmund Drew. My father said, no, 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 no. No, uh, that's not a mystery like you think of mysteries. It's more of a gothic novel. And anyway, Charles Dickens never lived to finish it. He died while I was writing it. Well, boys can think the most macabre, ghoulish things. And I thought, he died while he was writing this. I'm going to read the last chapter of the book. And I turned to what I thought was the last chapter of the book. And it wasn't really. It was an insert. that It was something that had been inserted that Dickens had written for the novel, that, and they didn't know where it went, so they just stuck it at the end of the book. And I read this sentence. Or pursued poker in a kind of despondent rapture, or if I was to deny that I came to this town to see and hear you, sir, what would it avail me? Or if I was to deny, M dash the end. I mean, it just stops mid sentence. And I pictured Charles Dickens writing and going, <laughs> Yeah, and they say, Yeah. <laughs> and it, I, was, I, was, I was haunted by this idea of I always loved unfinished works. And it stayed with me. One day I was taking a train ride from L.A. to New York, as everyone does, because it's so convenient. It's only four days. Um, and I grabbed a couple of books at a bookstore that I wanted to read because there's absolutely nothing else to do on the train. And, uh, and I grabbed The Mystery of Edward Drood. And I grabbed – I brought along props for this, Robert. So Thank I, you. I, 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 I grabbed this and by, by Penguin, and I read it. And as I read it, I thought, you know, this could be an interesting musical. And then I got to the part where Dickens wrote no more. And I was on a train. And I couldn't go to a library or anything. And I went nuts. And I started, I thought, I'm going to try it anyway. And in 1971, I sat down and tried to write this. This is four years before Barbara Streisand discovered my work and eight years before Escape the Pina Colada song hit the charts. I started to try to write it. And I wrote some passages of it. And they, there's a couple of bars that are still in the score from 1971. But it was so dark. It was so somber, so unremittingly grim that I thought, I, I don't know that this is what I want to write for theater. So I set it aside. And uh, in 1983, Joe Papp, the legendary producer, came to see me performing at Dangerfields, where I was doing a, an act. I was the first comedy performer to headline at Dangerfields Club. It was usually comedians with a comedy with a musical opening act. I was the musical main act because I did a lot of comedy in my act. My show at Dangerfields got a good review from the Times, and he and Gail Merrifield came to see me. And Gail sent back a a card to me after the show saying, have you thought about writing a musical? (laughs) If so, we should talk. And I looked at this card and I thought, how many people in New York City would kill their maiden aunt <laughs> to have this card saying, we're interested in what you might have in mind. Mm-hmm. I went to meet with them and I said, well, actually, I've always had this idea about a musical based on, they had no idea what I was talking about. No one had ever heard of this novel except English liter- literature majors or something. And, um, he said, it's interesting. How would you, how would you, what would you do about the fact that it's unfinished, though? You're going to write an ending? I said, I would not have the audacity to write an ending and say, this is what I think Charles Dickens wrote. I said, but I think you could, I, knowing how I've worked in the past writing alternate lyrics to the same pieces of music, 
I think I might be able to structure it so that as long as each actor keeps track of what they're supposed to do if they are voted this and if they are voted a lover and if they are voted a detective, as long as they mind their business and the thing is staged so that whoever's in that slot is going to be the person you play to. I said, I think it could be worked out that we could have the audience vote on key questions about the plot and you could have a different ending for the show every night. I went home and I, I wrote something I had never, I did something I'd never done before. I wrote a thesis for myself. All my life I had written term papers or these, you know, essays and stuff for a teacher to please the teacher. I said, let me sit down and I'll be the teacher and I'll, and let me write why I think this could work and why it might be a good thing. And I was writing and I did a lot of research. And finally, one day I, I got to this last page here, doing all this on a selectric typewriter. And uh, I suddenly typed the words Victorian vaudeville at the top of the page. And I realized that the way I could do this that would work for me and would allow us to f the ability to be modular with the piece would be to not try to do a musical of the mystery of Edwin Drood, but to do a musical about a motley music hall company in 1895, shameless hams who are eager to get an encore under any circumstances and who have a bunch of their set pieces that they're going to sing no matter what, e what the plot is about. If they're doing Hamlet, they're still going to sing that song. Yeah. Have them try to do this mystery of Edwin Drood, and it'll be about them. It's a show within a show. We'll have a chairman. Oh, yes, of course, Victorian vaudeville. Because if you have a music hall, you have a chairman. He can be the narrator. Oh, and Edwin, I was looking for an extra female lead. There weren't enough women in the show. And I suddenly said, wait, wait. If Ed Edwin Drood sounds like what you call principal boy in an English Christmas panto. Oh, yes, I will, uncle. I'll be, I'm off to London to make my fortune. I'm Dick Whittington. Uh, I said, what if Edwin Drood was principal boy? What if? A woman played Edwin Drood. And then you'd, that would mean that you'd have, for the love duet between Rose and Edwin Drood, you'd have a love duet for two sopranos. No one's ever written a love duet for two sopranos. Yeah, right. Not then. Now, sure. But yeah, not yeah. in 1983 we're talking about here. And I, I went into his office, Joe's office, and Joe took the phone off the hook, and I performed the entire musical alone, start to finish. Mm -hmm. Joe voted. <clears throat> The person he voted for for murder was my least favorite choice. When he said, when he said I vote for blank, I said, shit. <laughs> and I had pre-recorded all the accompaniments, and I did every bit of dialogue, three hours. Mm. And when it was done, he said, okay, well, this is the story. Every year we do Shakespeare in the park. So this year you're going to be Shakespeare. If it goes well, um, you know, we'll take it to Broadway. I walked out of that meeting at the public theater. Can you imagine what I felt? Mm -mm. I didn't know what to do. Mm. And I was lucky enough to have Wilfred Leach as my director, Graziella Daniel as my mm. choreographer. They had Bob Shaw as the designer. A lot of the cast of Pirates of Penzance, which they had just finished doing. Patty Kohenauer had just been alternating with Linda Ronstadt as the lead in La Boheme, the production of La Boheme they were doing in English at the, at the, at the public theater. She alternated with her the way, the, you know, uh, Howard McGillan was in that production of La Boheme as well. And I suddenly have this amazing team that already is sort of knows how they work together. And into that, I suddenly came Rob Marshall was the dance captain. <laughs> wow. He said, what are you going to, I, I said, I don't see you. He said, well, I'm dance captain. I'm going to be swing probably. I said, oh, well, you can be swing. I said, that's good. What's a swing? And Rob took me aside and explained how swings work and how they have to cover all the ensemble roles as the ensemble players step into the lead roles. Um, and I, I, I learned to just listen and try to understand it all. It never occurred to me not to orchestrate the piece myself. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that Broadway composers don't orchestrate their work, except right. for maybe Jason Robert Brown, right. one exception in recent times. Yeah. I'd always arranged everything myself. The Streisand albums that I did, I was the arranger on it, conductor. And conductor, yeah. And but they finally told me, no, you don't have to do the orchestrations. And I was halfway through doing them, so I finished them. So I had this day where... Um, 
this musical opened, and I had written its book, lyrics, music, orchestrations, and uh, and it it flew. People liked it. It's yeah. amazing, and uh, and I was reborn as a as a writer. Good morning, Mama. Liza, darling. We've got to help the boys at Behind the Curtain. Oh, Broadway's living legends. Oh, it's marvelous. Well, what, what would they like? Some cream of wheat? No, Mama, they want some money. Money? Well, let's send them a great big bag of money. No, all you have to do is go to patreon.com. You know, it's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and, and you set up a monthly donation. Money makes the world go around, Mama. Oh, don't I know it? Patreon.com. Do it now. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Rupert, can you tell us about the first read-through where you got to hear other people's voices embodying your work? I always say this, Robert. Whenever I have a new piece, I said this just a couple of weeks ago with, with the, the nutty professor no Gunkwit. I said, I will learn more the first time actors read my script aloud than I have learned in the year or two years or three years of writing it. Mm. That two-hour period, I will suddenly say, oh, that's what this is. That's who that is. That will ne- that, oh, that line will never be heard by any human being again. That joke will never be attempted. That's a goodbye. And, <laughs> and that's who this show is about. I didn't know. They always inform me. Kevin is uh, a fantastic music director and knows so much about that world and orchestrations. I'm assuming he probably has some music questions for you. So well, I'm, I'm going to turn it over to Kevin for a bit. Well, I, I'm fascinated that you you studied music theory, composition, right? And that yet you spent so much of your career, you know, in the studio, arranging all of that. But the score to Misery of Edmund Drude is complex music. I mean, were, were you constantly writing? I mean, because pop tunes is pretty one, four, five, one. But the, the, the harmonies and the voice leading, all of these things that's going on in Mystery of Edmund Drude is so much more complex than I ever would have imagined coming out of you. Did you know that you had those kind of complex compositional skills? Was this, uh, was, did content dictate form? Was it because this is a, uh, this, you know, Victorian English Hall comedy? So we're gonna we're gonna sort of infuse a little bit. Can you just tell us a little bit about your your writing process in that? It's gonna sound. I don't know how to answer this without sounding very smug about myself. But humility out the window. Do it. The mystery of Edmund. People don't understand because there is a lot of silliness in it. Yeah. But a lot of it is as complex as any musical director or 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 keyboard player has had to deal with. It's hard to play, and it's (laughs) it's very hard to play. It's and it's uh, chromatically. All over the map. You yep. never know what key you're in from yep. one bar to another. Now, that's not true of certain songs where they are what you would expect them to be. Wages of Sin is a very, it's a, just a she was poor, but she was honest kind of music hall song. Mm. Right. Uh, but some of the stuff, especially Jasper's stuff, is yeah. like you just, it's all over. I always wanted to write that way, but you can't write that way for pop radio. Right. You couldn't write that way. People would say, is it hard writing for theater? I'd say, no, no, you don't understand. I said, when I write for, when I write a pop song, I wrote a, a song in 1987, 87, 
that, that was a, went to like number three on the charts for a group called the Jets called You Got It All Over Him, sung by a 14-year-old girl. What am I going to write for a 14-year-old girl on Top 40 Radio to sing? This is pre-Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera, right, by the way. Right. So you, you are constrained when you write for pop, Top 40 to write number one in the vernacular. Mm. You can't write... If you, if I walked into a place on Tin Pan, if I walked into the Brill Building or 1650 Broadway and said, "Here's a lyric," it goes, "I'm wild again, beguiled again, a whimpering, simpering child again." They'd say, "Okay, out, out now, out." No, <laughs> <laughs> spring is here. I hear. Oh, you mean you spelled it different? Oh, I see. It's here and here. Yeah, go away. <laughs> so, so you want you have what I lack myself, and now I have to scratch my back myself. No, you don't do that. Bad writer, bad writer. Um, so you always had to funnel yourself into what how people were talking, unless you were Bob Dylan, and then you could say anything you bloody hell want. Right. And you no, did. you know. Now, when I started working writing my own albums, I could start sneaking in some of this chromaticism and strange voice leading. And what I said is that when uh, uh, there's a quote I've seen of mine circulating, and it's not that it's profound, it just happens to be honest in this case. I said, it's so much better to write songs for a world you've, in, a universe you've invented mm. than for the universe you've inherited. Wow. So, so if I'm a songwriter in 1975, 80, 85, I've got to write for that universe. But suddenly I looked up and said, no, it's 1895. Mm -hmm. And I have all the tools at my disposal that Sir Arthur Sullivan had. And maybe I can cheat a little and say I had some of the skills that Gustav Holst had, who wrote The Planets. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can start to do that. And Wagner was beginning to do some stuff where it just trellised up this way. And I'm saying, so there's no one going to... I'm just writing atmosphere here. It's not like someone's going to say, well, that tune will never work on the radio. And it was almost mm -hmm. like, it was like a complete rebellion against everything that I had had to deal with for 20 years as a, as a songwriter. Yeah. Uh, and being able to say, no, what the only uh, scale by which I need to judge this is, is it working in the dramatic moment that I have created on stage? Is this what a crazed choir master would sing when he talks about wanting to do evil and having to keep that inside. And can I then voice lead that way? And wouldn't he feel? And, and so it, it, it became this very, not every bit of it. Don't quit while your head is a big candor and ebb, ra ra boom type of song, except that it has some kind of, it keeps modulating and modulating in ways that you don't notice. Right. It keeps going up a step each time a new person comes up, but you don't, quite hear it and yet for some reason you're now in a key you never expected to be in mm. one other thing i would throw your way kevin is mm -hmm. think of my luck in 1985 if you had a broadway musical at the imperial theater by the rules of local 802 of the american federation of musicians i had to have a 27 piece orchestra right they and put it rules if, they put if, rules. if, if i could have done it if I could have done it with six pieces, they, the producer would still have had to pay 27 people. Right. So I could be indulgent and have a real woodwind section, a real brass section, a real string section. I had some synths doing some other stuff. I had a percussionist as well as a drummer. Nowadays, mm -hmm. to get eight, you're, 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 you're lucky. So from a historical perspective, I'm curious, the union said... If you were in a Broadway theater, you had to have 27. I think each house it, had its own rules. That's right. It depended on how big the theater was and what they would stipulate, which each theater, uh, the number of pit musicians that they had to employ. Yeah, so even it. if you weren't going to use 27, that is there correct. were still 27 paychecks going they out. Would be, there would be a chair there where you would have to sit for the show. That's correct. Wow. Getting to work with that size orchestra uh, of an, that size of an orchestra, I owed it to myself and to them and to everyone paying a salary for them to play to make use of every color that they were capable. Mm. Of, you know? Beautiful. So yeah. I had every doubling of woodwinds you can possibly imagine, and I I did without violas because I found that most of what I write for viola can be played on the cello, and if I do without the violas, 
I can double the number of cellos. And when you have double the number of cellos playing a unison line, that sounds like a symphony orchestra. Yeah. Rupert, I'd love to jump ahead a little bit to Curtains because this is fascinating, which is this is a show that you're not with from the ground up. You're you're entering to, to help save the day. Can you talk me through a little bit about how that process worked for you? How'd you get involved and what it was like working with John Kander? Working with John Kander is one of the great privileges of my life, not only mm. from a theatrical career, musical point of view, but just as a human being, one mm. of the great human beings to ever know. And likewise, Scott Ellis, the director, just oh, two, yeah. of the, two of my favorite people on the planet. But uh, Curtains was unusual. Curtains was a long time aborning. Sean Candor and Fred Ebb and Peter Stone, one of the great book writers of all time, wanted to do a mystery musical. I'm told, I'm not, I don't know that this is true, but I'm told that they went to see the mystery of Edwin Drew and said, well, well, We'll put that aside for a while because that one's that's a mystery musical and that's up. Anyway, they tried a lot of passes at it, and um, I didn't know I didn't know anything about it. But Scott um, had made it a personal mission of his to try to give this musical life for Candorneb, and they did a couple of readings. And the first reading ran four hours, and uh, I was told by the people who were in that cast that they, when it was done, they didn't know what the story was. They got very excited when Peter Stone came in with a new script because it was half the length of the previous reading. And then they learned that he had learned that you can print on both sides of a page. (laughs) (laughs) Good. Good. It's true. They did another reading and again, didn't work. I again repeat, Peter Stone, one of the great book writers yes. of all time. Yes. Then Peter Stone died. And they thought, well, maybe that's that. A year went by, and Scott came to me. I don't know if he came to me um, because I had written a mystery musical before. Uh, I know that he attended a number of the original productions of The Mystery of Edmund Drood because he was involved romantically with someone in the cast. Mm-hmm. So he lived all that with them. They were lead. And uh, so I don't know which of it it was, but he, can't, he said, can you take a look at this? And he gave me the, a copy of the last script that they had done a reading of. And I remember I was taking a drive up, to, um, up towards Buffalo, and I read it on the way up, and I was disconsolate. Because even though Peter Stone was one of the great book writers of all time, this book, I, I just couldn't, I couldn't find any way into it. Mm. It seemed to be a parody. First of all, everyone in the, in the story was unlikable, but they were all show business characters. And I, I thought, but I like show business characters. Yeah. I hate all these people. And I didn't know, and the hero kept devolving into um, parodies of songs from other great shows. And I thought, but this is Candor and Ebb. They write the great shows. Candor and Ebb doesn't have to do a parody of The King and I. Suddenly the detective is going, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm thinking, no, we don't need to quote The King and I in, in a Candor and Ebb musical. I took a look at it and, and, and finally met with uh, John and Fred. I have to tell you, my previous meeting with John Candor was at the opening preview of The Mystery of Edwin Drood in Central Park at the Delacorte Theater. And it went wonderfully. We almost went past 11, but it went wonderfully. And as I'm standing there hearing the audience going mad at the possibility that this is maybe something that's going to be something other than in the park, I start to be pummeled, pummeled, beaten on my shoulders. And I turn and I see it's John Kander, who barely knows me. And he shakes me. And he says, you did it. You did it. He says, isn't it wonderful? He said, musical theater. There's no money in it, but isn't it wonderful? And I thought, you're John Kander. If there's no money in it, what am I doing? (laughs) 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 Oh, my gosh. So so I go to Fred's kitchen. You went in through the service entrance. And... uh, we sat in the kitchen where apparently there was always traditionally a bowl of cookies. And there was Scott and Fred 
and John and me. And I said, look, the songs here, a lot of these are wonderful, and I think I can keep them in the show. But um, I think I've got to reinvent the whole show. I've got to write a new show. I said, I can keep the basic premise of a, that, you're out of, that it's a company out of town and that there's been the threat of a murder or a murder, <laughs> and that the detective who comes to solve the murder happens to love musical theater more than solving crimes. I said, I can keep that. I said, but I think everything else has to change. I've got to change the murders, the methods, the motives, the relationships, some of the names. And I said, finally, and this was, I took a deep breath. I said, and, um, and I, I think that this cannot be a contemporary musical. This cannot be set in the present day because we all know that these kinds of people don't exist anymore. Mm. These are all wonderful characters out of All About Eve and the golden age. (laughs) The golden age. I said, I think you have to let me reset it in the golden age. Let me put it in 1959, that era where you were just about to launch your own work and the the era that that you, that made you want to write musicals. And I think I can make it work if it's in period because no one is going to accept these people being that, but we all accept that maybe back then they were that way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they sort of, I thought I could get thrown out on my ears, but but I I didn't know what else to say, except that I've got to do it. I rewrote act one and we met again around the kitchen table. And Fred seemed to love it. He particularly loved the curtain for act one which involved someone being hung to death by a curtain going up and down. He liked everything about it. And he, at that day, he sang me a song that they had been trying to work into a musical for like 20 years. Mm. That they'd written for, I think, a TV special. I think Carol O'Connor. It was probably on something like the Gary Moore show or the Carol Burnett show. And it was a song about being on the sea called In the Same Boat. And... It was one of those songs, not a Broadway counterpoint, but a Broadway triple counterpoint. Three melodies at the same yeah. time. Oh, wow. And he said, "We've been we, every time we get it into a show, it gets cut. We tried to get it into Steel Pier. Couldn't. And I said, I, I looked at Fred and said, I, 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 I'll guarantee you, I'll, I'll get that into this show. And he said, that's, that's great. And uh, Friday, he faxed me a new lyric he had written for one of the songs. And I called him and I said, oh, this is a wonderful lyric, Brad. Thank you. And he said, oh, that's so nice. And he, by the way, he gave me a hug. It was the first time I thought I'm accepted. I'm in the family now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Monday, Scott called me and told me he had died. Mm-hmm. Fred had died. Oh, gosh. And I had only written act one. And then the question was, could, would John move forward with it. And there was a a period where John was thinking about it. Huge loss for musical theater. And imagine, you can't imagine the loss for John. And um, he finally said that for all the time that people had put into it, for the actors who had already started to shape these roles, for all that Scott had put into it, and for the work that he and Fred, the songs that he and Fred had written, that he was willing to give it a try to see if we could complete the musical without Fred. One of the problems was that there were some topical references in the lyric that would make no sense in 1959 because they were talking about things that happened in the 70s and the 80s. Mm-hmm. So there were those, just, just a couple of them, but they were anachronisms. But John was kind enough to say um, that he thought that he could work forward because he knew I was a lyricist as well as a book writer and that I would be able to be a good sounding board or maybe in some instances come up with a word or two or something like that. And we continued. Um, I had to create a whole new internal musical for the show. Mm-hmm. Um, and I w- landed on Robin Hood because I had learned from plays within a play 
that once the audience knows they're seeing a play within a play, the inner play doesn't really matter that much to them because they know those characters aren't real. Mm-hmm. So if you say, oh, it's a wonderful love song between these two characters, you remember, then in Act One, you say, yeah, but they're not, I want to know what's happened to you, the people, mm-hmm. who are gonna, the, the people, the real people outside the inner play. So I had to make it a story that anyone could figure out without a whole lot of backstory. And re- so I knew it should be some kind of fairy tale or mm. some, some story that everybody already knows. And I yeah. thought Robin Hood, I thought of de- the old musicals from the golden era, the, the ones that were set in Wild West settings, Destry with Andy Griffith. Of course, yes. And, uh, I'm and, impressed. And, yeah. and, Red, and Red Garters, which I think was a movie that was filmed like a stage play with the Rosemary Clooney. I just thought that that's a thing that they did back then. They would think we can do whoop up. Right, right. ever seen. And I thought, well, Robin Hood, except it's R O B B I N apostrophe. He's a Robin Hood. That Robin, dad blamed bandit, Robin Hood. Yeah. And I thought, yeah, everyone, and made that, from that instantly became Madame Marion instead of Maid Marion. So Madame Marion's the saloon hall woman. Mm-hmm. And there's Miss Nancy, the school marm. And there's, uh, instead of father, what, what was he? Instead of Friar Tuck, it's Parson Tuck. Nice. I like that. But you, you, you didn't have to get a, you didn't need to have a pamphlet to tell you what that inner musical was. And, and once we knew we could have so much fun with that, uh, we started to write songs that were fun for that musical, such as That Away mm. and uh, Kansas Land and Wide Open Spaces. Mm. And um, we managed to complete it. We did it at the Amundsen. And, uh, and eventually we, um, came to Broadway with it. So that was, that was very nice. Yeah. Rupert, this has been such a wonderful joy getting to talk to you today. And thank you so much for letting us in into the way you work and all the, all those wonderful anecdotes. Once again, folks, Nutty Professor at Algonquin. Rupert, tell us again, who's in this wonderful show? You have have Max Crumb. Um, You have uh, Eleanor Ricardo. And uh, by the way, uh, you've got... um, Mel Johnson Jr., who's just—I mean, it's such a, it's such a privilege to work with him, and he's such a delight, and he's got so many great inventive ideas. I can't believe that we we have him, mm-hmm. Jeff McCarthy as well, and Clea Blackhurst doing the role once again. She did ten years ago, just amazing, mm-hmm. and fr- it's it's as fresh as ever. So oh. it's an amazing company, amazing director Mark Bruni. Joanne Hunter, my favorite person to work with, just so great, and uh, and uh, and we're having a great time. Oh, amazing, folks! Yeah. Please go up and see it. Ticket link in our show description today. Rupert, uh, on behalf of Kevin and I, but all of our listeners, thank you for giving us so many wonderful, wonderful moments in the theater, and we cannot wait to see all the next wonderful moments that come from your imaginative, brilliant mind. Yeah. Thank, thank you, you Kevin. Rupert. Thank yeah. you, Robert. Thank you so we much. You should have enjoyed this yeah. a lot. Thank Yay. you. Yay. All right, folks, till next time. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back in the orphanage, right back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists, what they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. 
There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.